This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Welcome to the 507th episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast, or MM Plays Episode 7, depending on how you look at it. But tonight we're going to review milestones, tests, and contests in your tabletop role-playing games. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. I'm Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. Woo! Hey, we're here. It's, uh, it's this episode. It's the first one after our first actual play thing, so that's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we should probably do some announcements. Do we have any announcements? I don't know that we have any announcements. I do want to talk about the Patreon for a second. Do. Do you mind if we talk about the Patreon for a second? I think you should talk about the Patreon. We have a, a Patreon, and if you want to get all of our children of the Shroud accoutrement, that's a good word, right? Accoutrement? Phil's like eating a donut, so he's not talking. Mm-hmm. I was <laughs> nodding. <laughs> donut good. It's radio, man. <laughs> what's the what's the Hans Booby? Put the gun away. This is radio. <laughs> uh, we have the setting document for the background setting for Children of the Stroud. We have our character sheets that are up there on Google Docs in the file folio. Character folio with character folio. We have our mods that we are using to play this game. We have. Bonus content from Phil talking about his GMing choices while mm-hmm. running this game. We'll eventually have the story notes. Yeah, and yes, eventually there'll be the story notes. Unfortunately, I can't release them until the end. Yeah. We cannot have the what's going on document because <laughs> the what's going on document for oh. session one has a lot of extra material in it. There's also the session zero notes. That's our, a, like, in the template. From our actual session our, zero. Yeah, actual oh. session zero. So oh, all yes. that stuff's there. You can get all of that by being a $4 patron and most importantly, access to the Slack room mm-hmm. because the Slack room is the best way to talk to us. It is. I think I'm going to engage the Slack room. I got to find some time. I got to make a room and then not let you guys in it and then let the patrons in to help me out with some stuff. That's a good idea. We, we actually had a suggestion for another weapon for our- I uh, saw it from Jared what's, Rasher. What's the name of the game? Uh, Call of Violence. Call of Violence. Call of Violence, yes. Uh, it was the human recycler. Yes. It shot pieces, you, you loaded dead bodies into it, and it shot fiery oh, pieces it. of dead bodies. I love it. So, like, when, like, you have to kill somebody, then you run over and, like, pump it with, like, yeah. you pump the body with the recycler and then shoot out parts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's pretty great. Disgusting it's, and it's, great. It's going in there at some point, I'm sure. Best game ever. Mm-hmm. Call, of violence. Call of violence. Well, with that, that's our announcement section. Join the Patreon if you're not a part of it. All right, let's go to the garage. Access granted. We're talking about milestones, at least in the first part of this cherry. Lead us in. Uh, we're in the garage, and in the garage we talk about mechanics that we like. And with our new Cortex Children of the Shroud campaign, we decided to use Milestone XP Awards. So we're going to discuss how they work here in other role-playing games, but first, we need a definition. Behold! You are in the presence of Definition Panda. Yeah. Milestone, an action or event marking a significant change or stage in development. Now, some games, especially games with character levels, use milestone advancement to refer to simply leveling up characters at a certain story point. 5e. Experience points are less important or not even recorded. The GM simply gives the players a new level when it's appropriate for the campaign. I'm a huge fan of this. I do this in, I, I mod this into many of my games. Oh, Fate has it too. Fate has it built in. Mm-hmm. But like, for instance, for uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, I will do it at just the end of an adventure. Mm-hmm. Everybody level up. However, in Cortex Prime, Milestone Advancement is an actual mod and it has some structure with it 
And the way it works is it is session oriented and gives particular XP rewards for achieving certain goals. Is it session oriented or story oriented? You're correct. It is story oriented. Okay. Just, I was just questioning because we're going to talk about it later, I think, and there'll be story oriented goals in there. Um, you know what? I'm going to say a little of both. Sure. A little of both makes sense. Because there are definitely story oriented goals. And then there are things that can just happen during the session that you can pick up XP for. Absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit later on that some of the rewards can be only taken once per session, but can be taken multiple times per story. There we go. And once per session, once per scene. Right. We'll get into it later. We'll, we'll get into about it like, later. literally yeah. right now. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us? Oh, good. So how do cortex milestones work? Yeah, Phil? See, like right now. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, yeah, that's fine. All right. Here's <laughs> Trump on my line. Man. Yeah, I was, cause it was a natural lead into it. Okay. That's, Sometimes the script is there as a guideline. These are like guidelines, not like the pirate's rules. code. Like the, like pirate's, the pirate's code. code. <laughs> All right. So Bob, Chris, <laughs> this is how cortex milestones work. Uh, the GM will make several lists of milestones. The book has some good references for this. So like when you get into it, it's really easy to see from the book how to set these up. Now, some are designed for the session. Some will be themed for the story arc or even the campaign. Some of the milestones might be hit by all the characters in the session, while others might only be achieved by certain characters, depending on their actions. Um, Each list has just three uh, levels a 1 XP goal, a 3 XP goal, and a 10 XP goal. The 1 XP level is generally easy to achieve and can often be hit as many times as it occurs. So you can just kind of, you know, tap and get your point here and there in the middle of a scene, more than once in a scene, that kind of thing. Although they can be capped. Now the 3 XP level is a goal or event that can only be hit once per scene. So once it comes up in a scene, you get your 3 XP, even if you do it again, doesn't matter. Can, can I do the 10 one? Yeah, I'll do the 10 one. So the, the 10 XP level one is something that can only be hit once per session or once per story. And it's normally a milestone which is shared among the entire party. Once it's achieved, it cannot be triggered again until the next session or until a new one is written yep. up. Because sometimes when they're done, they're, they're done. So you have to go on to the next thing. Exactly. These milestones can also be personal or they can represent a change or major event in the character's life. The um, Marvel Heroic role-playing game had this for characters. And often when you would finish one of these, you would have to write a new one. For our implementation in Children of the Shroud, we keep two of them fixed and then we change one out per story. Until we decide to change that. (laughs) Yes, until we decide to change it. Yeah, sure. Here are some sample milestones from our Children of the Shroud game, which is, of course, about swashbuckling magical high schoolers. So we have what are called high school milestones. And the first one is you get one XP, whatever you do something that a normal high school student would do in the story. So passing a task, that sort of thing. You get three experience points when someone has a scene that changes their relationship with another character. And the 10 XP reward is for when we participate in a major high school event, the prom, um, I don't know, suspension, maybe I'm not sure what other high school events would be. Sure. You get suspended. Maybe I'll give you some XP. The homecoming game, the, yeah. the yeah. dance homecoming that goes along with that, rally. The, pep rally, the whole event, the big fire at the school, that sort of thing. Yeah, the bomb, not, bonfire. Not when the fire. Not oh, when the yeah. school burns and down. Bo- and bonfires as well. Yes. I don't know what. What are you thinking of for high school events here? You're the game master. Oh, I mean, yeah. These are plays. This can be a significant sporting event. It probably won't be every sporting event. It could be, for instance, homecoming. But it could also be like playing your rival. Usually at homecoming, if you get lucky. Yeah. Midterms. Finals week is definitely a major event. You know, Phil. Now thinking of this, really quickly. 
you need to uh, have a story arc about the school putting on a play, and the title of the story arc has to be The Taming of the Shroud. I, very punny. It's, it's right I love there. it. Are any of you going to be in the school play? I mean, I'm probably in the school play. <laughs> you might rope me into being Benvolio. I'm down for this. Like, one of my kiddos is always in the school play, so, like, I'm pretty familiar with the events that surround the school play, everything from, you know, tryouts to opening night. Look, if we do the Taming of the Shroud, we're going to do, like, a modernized version of the Taming of the Shroud that isn't 10 Things I Hate About You. But we'll do something like that, because I love me some Shakespeare. Let's be... We'll do a whole episode on, like, Shakespeare. Let's be 100% clear. At this point in time, 10 Things I Hate About You is no longer modern. It's like a 30-year-old movie. Yes. <laughs> now we have to do it because if we're going to do this, we have to have Silas play Petruchio and Lisa has to be Katrina. You're like, you're like treading on some <sighs> look, man, the team in the shrew is not exactly my favorite Shakespearean no. play these days. It doesn't, it doesn't play real well. Uh, I, it's kind of a, it's kind of a problem. I like, I like the punny name, but yeah. I don't think we'll actually do the Taming of the Shrew. I think we'll, yeah, I mean, it doesn't else. have to be that play, but I mean, the, I'd be down with Macbeth. We could do Romeo and Juliet because everybody knows it. Sure. Now that we're on this weird tangent about Shakespeare. I mean, you know. We can't I'm, do Othello because I don't really want to do the bedroom of death scene. No, I like Macbeth, man. Like Comedy of errors? Much ado about nothing? I like Macbeth. It's, you know, disaster. I'm sorry, every are you referring to the Scottish play? Of course you like Macbeth because it's disaster at every play. I mean, I'm a fan of Midsummer's Night Dream, so sure, girl, that's that was... me. Because it's funny. Anyways, we should probably move on. Move it along. Let's talk about the Shroud now, as far as experience points go. So you get one experience point when you defeat an, defeat an adversary. Bob, what's the three experience point one? Uh, you get three XP when you unveil part of a threat to the Shroud. Hey, uh, Phil, what's the 10 XP one? Yeah, 10 XP when you protect the Shroud when its discovery is imminent. Those are pretty good, pretty solid magical cop things to do. Yeah. They are. Which is why we picked them. Well, let's talk about a time for change now. The session-specific maneuvers. Phil. 1 XP when you confront someone with or about a problem. Jerry, 3 XP. Oh, you get 3 XP when you use your magic. Chris. Dun, dun, dun. And the 10, 10 XP one is when Gunny's powers manifest. Now, Phil, I have a, I have a question. Yeah. Why did you choose these three experience point milestones? For this particular block, because this is the story specific one. And this kind of goes into, this is going to lead a little into our discussion about what kind of play experience they create. I'm helping to telegraph what I want to see happen in this session. This is like my love letter to the session. Makes sense. So I'm telling you, like, I want you to talk about problems in this game. Like, I want you to engage problems and I want you to use magic. This was our intro episode. So were we going to get into magic or not? But I wanted to put something on the table that said, look, if you get into magic in this first episode, I'm going to give you a few points, which you guys did. Although I think we find out about your magic use in the part two, because if I remember correctly, part one ends with the uh, wind in the classroom. Nobody used magic in part one. Yeah. So in part two, we're going to, you know, I'm leaning you guys into using some magic. You know, technically I did try to early in the session. We didn't engage any mechanics around it because I was trying to commune with the sword. Yes. Uh, and then the 10 one, like, that's obvious, right? Like, I just, I need to just give you guys some XP because if we're looking at it through a television eye, that's like the big moment. It's a good structure. It was a fine moment. You know, it tells you guys when I put it on the table a little bit about where this game's going. So let's just play to it, too, because it gives us a giant reward to play towards that. Yeah, I'll say that there's a tricky part to this before we jump into the next section. The tricky part for me is 
how much of it do I write and basically telegraph to you guys what's going to happen in the session? Some of these may need to be a little more cryptic, or I know that, for instance, um, the sprawl uses a similar system. And if I remember correctly in the sprawl, I think you reveal them in sequence. Like you don't put them all out at once. You like reveal the first one and then the second one, and then the third one. I might not be remembering that correctly, but I do remember having like not worrying about it as much. There's also a thing where you don't have to necessarily use all three things for a story one because some of the general ones, the shroud one and the high school one might cover some of the mm-hmm. ones that you were thinking mm-hmm. of. So you just leave them out. Yeah, so there's no double dipping Correct. for those. Yeah. In fact, it's kind of bad sometimes to double dip. I don't think we should do double dipping. We haven't talked about that, but I don't think we should do double dipping. I think I think you get the highest of whatever one you can find on the on the board. You makes, should never double dip. And not in this climate. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> All right. Wear a mask, wear protection. So what sort of play experience do Cortex milestone advancements create? First of all, when they're on the table... They help guide the heroes on what kind of things they can and possibly should be accomplished in each session. Gives them some guidance. I think we just went over that. Just, yeah, yeah, we yes. did. They also help balance advancement. I would like to hear how they help balance advancement because I was thinking about it and I don't know. It's in my color, but I didn't write it, so I'm not really sure how it actually balances advancement. Because the GM can decide um, when they put these down um, what events they want the players to do and how often. If there's something that the players are going to be doing on a regular basis... They can make sure that that's not one of the one XP things, or they can put something if some if players are behind or if one player is behind, you can put events in that are experience points at a certain level that you know one player will do to get the more experience points in the game by playing it instead of just giving them out. I actually don't think that's true because of the two general ones, because I could just do those things constantly in the game to get experience points mm-hmm. and you can't double dip. So therefore I can just keep hitting my high school, my shroud milestones. And always stay ahead of Bob, who didn't get a lot of experience points in the first session because he didn't have his magic. Yeah, but the GM can change those as, as it goes on. We yeah, but he can change, the, change he, those to keep things that keep happening over and over again to guide the players in different directions. He could. Mm-hmm. He could. But might. that would that would he might, but that would also mess with the base of the game and could also be upsetting to the players. Without talking to the players, you've gone back on the promise that you've made. I don't want to reveal anything from the next okay. epi- from the next episode. But for instance, that three XP when you use magic. When you listen to the next episode, Bob technically picks that one up, even though he's not fully aware that he's using magic. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like I made it broad enough so that I could make sure that Bob got those points. But I do have to say that depending on if a player is playing hard, like if they're playing to the XP, a player can rack up a lot of XP in this game. And a player who's just kind of casually playing and going along and just kind of checking the lists every now and then to tick off what they got may actually fall behind like mm-hmm. there's and there's no correction mechanism there's no like throttling mechanism for it other than the built-in throttle in the structure it actually says that you can cap them at once per session or once per scene even the one xp ones yeah, yeah but that's for everybody not for a specific player correct. correct on the surface to me it is not an inherently balanced system okay I don't um, think it has to be either. No, no, I don't think it has to be either. It, it's asymmetrical advancement. Not everybody's going up at the same speed. Now, in the case of like 5e, that milestone advancement is actually even. Because you're just saying like, okay, table, everybody go up a level. A different kind of milestone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But like in that form of milestone advancement, it is actually even because unlike, I think games got rid of this at some point. But like if you go back to like 1e, where the experience tables for characters are completely different. Characters did not advance at the same rate, but 
if you were like in 5e and you're doing milestone instead of XP, you are pretty much guaranteeing that like my party all goes up a level together at the same yeah. time. And in that case, it would actually be balancing in that system. Here's another thing, because we're not talking about it in this episode, which maybe we probably should have, is how to spend this experience point stuff that we're getting. Yeah, it's like part two. It is. It should be part two, because we, we don't have that here, right? Because we're doing testing contests in this, oh, but we're doing yeah. the buying of stuff. There's actually a list. Yes. It's interesting, because it's almost like we have a point-by system after the fact. Yeah, there's yes. like a shopping list. Yeah. It's like the old Wheel of Fortune. What? Yeah. See, Bob remembers. See, these what are we talking old about guys here? remember. All right, I, so here, wait, pause for a second. I'm going to tell you. Back in the old days, and this is what made Wheel of Fortune way cooler than it used to be. All right. All right, so you know Wheel of Fortune now where you solve the puzzle, you get money, right? Yes. Okay, in the old version of the show, and it took longer, you couldn't do as many puzzles, there was a carousel, like, and it was big. I mean, like, people could stand on it. There was a carousel of prizes that once you got your money... You could buy. So you would be like, okay, you solve the puzzle. You got like $1,500 and you'd be like, for $300, I'm going to buy the jukebox. Uh, I'm going to buy that cooler with the stereo built in it for a buck 50. And then like whatever was left got put in a gift certificate. You had to spend all your money as much as you could. And that's why they always had things like a cardboard card of Pat Sajak for like a dollar. Right. And it was all really overpriced stuff. One day as a kid, I saw somebody buy a Pac-Man machine on the show, and I nearly lost my shit at, like, age eight. So anyway, that's the history of uh, Wheel of Fortune. But, of course, you could only solve so many puzzles because you had to actually spend time in that half hour buying prizes. Plus, if players were slow buying prizes, I suspect there was a lot more editing that had to happen. And eventually... Oh, guaranteed. They tossed it just for you win cash. Simpler. Anyway, to go back to the original thing, yeah, you take your XP and you buy some stuff with it, which you can buy advancements, you can buy... Extra signature assets you can buy. Uh, you can buy up dice in, in your various areas. Those kinds of things. The editing for Wheel of Fortune must have been brutal because back in the day, you had actual tape. Yeah, you had to cut. I let me tell you that um, when I was on the air as a DJ in college, was still during the time that if we did stuff on reel to reel, we had to. And I used to know how to do it: how to cut and tape like cut and splice yeah, reel yeah. to real tape it sucked i used to watch film students do it when i when it was in college at rit i can't even imagine doing it with film just doing it with audio was bad enough uh. i don't know it's way easier when it's, you're knocking out waveforms i love it mm-hmm. okay all right what's the next one phil they give the gm something to throw at the players right so th- this is the love letter thing first of all the the first two sets of goals tell us a lot about what i'm expecting in the game And it gives a place for you guys to drive to. And then the third one is kind of the unknown for you guys. When the game starts, I throw it out. And this is the, hey, this is the other thing I want to see happen in this story. For me to put something out there to kind of give you guys some inspiration. Kind of along that same note, these will help to reinforce the theme. All of these are going to be based around whatever the theme of your adventure is, whatever the theme of your game is. One of our things is high school. So... People get advancements by doing things in high school, doing high school sorts of things, and kind of bring us back to that every game. Yeah, I actually like that a lot about these, how we have two sets that are like overarching thematic Milestone XP things, and one that really focuses down on the story to help guide play as far as both theme or tone or actions that we want to take to progress play forward. It's it's pretty clever, actually. The last one is, is 
is a thing that they can do to cause some problems. Now, these milestone experience point sets can cause a bit of overfocusing if uh, players want to just play at them without playing at other things. They will try to frame scenes or get into scenes that will get them experience points. This can also make those kind of players or make players that like to just do whatever they want to do feel restricted in the choices that they can make. Now, I don't necessarily feel that this is a bug. It's more of a feature to help focus play. And because there's three sets of them, it doesn't really inhibit players to an extent, which is why there's three sets of them. If you only have one set, it would be very problematic. But having three sets gives some real variety to what you can do. Oh yeah, if you only have one set with just three things, like people be like hitting them left and right. I you know, I think the only thing like where it can I don't even know if it's a problem, but you certainly like this is definitely not my playstyle, but this is definitely some people's playstyle. You might be angling to be like, hey, before the story's before the story's done, I don't have enough XP to get a new signature asset. Uh-huh. So like you're like just doing the math in your head. You're like, you know what, I have to hit a three this session. Like I need to in the next scene or two or in the next hour, I need to hit what's the most likely of these like three pointers that I can hit. And I don't think that's bad. I think that's just a play style. You're just playing at the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely a play style. And it reminds me a lot of the person who will in say three E for example, plan out their 20 levels to see what they have to do and take. He has a name. He has a name, Bob. In order to get that prestige (laughs) class, or I need to do this so that I can get this feet at this level. This is a character. So that I can get this feet at this level. That Bob played. Et cetera, et cetera. No, it's not No, it's a friend. It's an old friend of ours. Oh, okay. Like 100%. Yeah. One one day confessed in the middle of the game that he had a sheet of paper that had his entire 20 levels of progression. And I'm, I'm like, that's bold because after level 10, you're just hoping I'm going to keep this game alive. That's a that's not an uncommon thing for people that played that game to do. Yeah, it's yeah. not an uncommon yes. thing for people that play Pathfinder to do. It, especially because of the way the games are, those two games are designed. They 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 lean into that kind of play. So that being said, yes, it's definitely a play style. Not my kind of play style. For that, sure. That's why I was terrible at those games because I never like one. I never did that, and two, I purposely would just like take feats that made sense for my character not that would like unlock things going forward i'd be like oh yeah i should have that like after the stuff that happened to me like i think i probably train up and i take this feat it's funny because we're talking about experience points and ways to get them essentially with these milestones but we're veering off into advancement yeah which i I I totally want to talk about fourth edition advancement how it broke my mind as far as (laughs) role-playing games go because you could retrain stuff Oh, I loved that. I loved retraining. I loved that because that was one, I would pick a thing, right? And then I would like take it out to play for a little while and be like, yeah, I didn't ever use this. Or I'd go to roll it the first time and be like, oh, this daily sucks, man. Like it Uh is, I misunderstood everything about this daily. And then the next level would come and I'd be like, yep, toss that guy. I'm going to go get a new one. I was just going to say, there's a little bit of the, the retraining kind of feel in the XP things that you can choose in our game because you've got the opportunity to adjust your roles up and down. Mm-hmm. So for example, Gunny does not have a lot of, he's got a D six in veil. That's his lowest. So at some point he could potentially not roles affiliations. Sorry. They're affiliations. fine. I'm just, I wanted to correct it. I flipped them into my head. That's cool. I cool. looked at my character sheet and then I flipped them. Yeah, that's fine. But yeah, 
So at some point, it most likely is going to happen. That veil die is going to go up and probably the mundane die or the, yeah, the mundane die is going to go down. So in my fourth edition game, I was playing a fighter, but I was not playing like the tank fighter. I was playing like a damage dealing fighter. Yep. But at some point, like level seven or eight, Drew Smith, secret weapon of the show, who was playing our tank, is like, I want to play a different character. And he goes and he plays a striker of some sort or, or a sorcerer or something like that. I can't remember what it was. So I'm like, well, shit, I'm the only fighter left. So I started retraining for like three levels to get a bunch of like tanky type stuff. It's awesome. So that I could be the tank for the group. And I was. Which was a, a nice little switch. And then he came back with that character. So then I retrained that stuff back out to go back to being the damage dealer. So by the time I was Drew. by the time I was level thirteen, I was back to being a high end damage dealing fighter, which was fun. Like I liked that. It it's neat. Like I, I, I loved it from the sake of just, you know, I would try a thing and be like, wow, that didn't work. Or somebody like I, I took this power because Bob also has a daily that interacts with it. And then Bob retrains his and it's like, well shit. I'll get rid of mine too then. Like, I'll retrain mine out. Makes sense. Do we have any suggestions, hacks, or wish lists that we'd like to talk about? Because uh, I'm I'm curious as to what people are thinking concerning uh, milestones, tests, and contests. I'll just mention Aux, because in Aux, we have two sets of advancements. There's points you can spend on yourself. Yep. And then there's points you can spend on Aux. Yep. We don't do the milestones Quite the same way. I just give out XP now. Yes. At the end of the story, I just give you guys a chunk of XP. By the way, that's a much more balanced way to approach this situation. It's a little easier in that it's like, hey, this story's worth X number of XP. But there's a hack. Yes, there's a hack. Uh, And then part of the reason we do that is one, I give you guys slightly more points so that you can spend them on Ox, which you have because Ox has like additional systems and things like that. And then the other thing that we put in for purchasing the advancement for oxes, some of them can be done just by purchasing them with XP. Some of them can be done by spending the XP and making a test. And some of them require a story. So like when Bob wanted to build the personal teleporter, it was like, no, we're going to have to do some work to get to the personal teleporter. Like you can spend the XP, you're going to get it. But we're going to have a story about like what it takes to make that happen in the game. I actually like that. It's it's story that leads into yes. the expenditure of XP that creates a story. It, yeah. It's sort of how downtime works in fifth edition D and actually I'm 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 a fan of that. Like spend a thing to create a story beat for your character. Yeah. I, I also like the idea that you guys have more than just more to spend than just on yourselves. Yeah. And then it also creates a mechanical benefit for your character later. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty neat. I would say like we could, not that we put it into the game. But for instance, if we had wanted to we could have a list where you could spend points for the club. The club gets some resources. I don't even understand what the club, how the club functions or what it's. Pr- yeah. Cause we didn't, cause is. we haven't, cause we haven't had our first session yeah. with the club that's coming up. Mm-hmm. I guess the hack is you can make a list for advancement to spend on more than just the characters. I mean, there's a whole bunch of hacks that we can implement. You can do these in one or three or whatever experience point sets that you want for individualized characters if you wanted to that's how the marvel heroic role-playing game sure. does it there's a bunch of ways to modify the rewrite this. the rewrite uh, yeah. thing that is another one that goes along for your personal ones when you achieve this rewrite it instead of having them always be 
always be one, three, or ten. They are always end of session ones. Yes. Like you do in a, a lot of Apocalypse World oh, games. Oh, I love that in Apocalypse World. Like, yeah. Apocalypse World did it, and so did Forbidden Lands. Remember, Forbidden Lands yes. had that like list. Like, did you bullshit today? You can You can apply all of those to this game if you wanted to. Yes, absolutely. Anybody else got any hacks, wish lists, or suggestions? All right, let's move on to part two then. Let's talk about tests and contests. All right, in Cortex Prime, tests and contests are two different but similar ways of resolving outcomes by engaging the dice mechanics. Tests are a dice roll where the character is trying to beat a difficulty often generated by the GM. Certain mods, you can use flat numbers for these, but often if you're playing Cortex in its, uh, in its true form, you're rolling against the GM and you're rolling against me, which is not so easy anymore. Whatever. You guys all wish we were back playing Fate. Man, no. you rolled a, Phil's minus one. Dude, you rolled a 12 and then no. you rolled a seven, so I don't want to hear it. You rolled great and then you rolled like trash. I mean, I hope so. I don't want to always, I don't want to always be kicking your asses but I do like compared to fate when I roll the dice. Now you guys take notice in the past. It was like, eh, no, we'll beat them. I know you kicked my ass a few times. You played fate too. It's far more challenging with the way the cortex dice behave for you than versus the fate dice for you. We want to talk about fate for a second. Can we talk about fate for a second. Sure. Look, one, all the stories I've heard and, and playing fate with you a few times. I actually think that you were probably a, a, a below average fate game master. I'm probably true. That's that. That is how I feel about it. And, and no, no, no shade on your game mastering skill. Like you were definitely a high end game master. Ninety nine percent of the time, that game does not suit you very well. When you pick up those dice and roll them, if you're not pretty much assured that you're going to succeed on a thing, you probably shouldn't be rolling those dice. If you're depending on the dice to help you out, you've made a mistake. That's yeah. how fate plays. Yeah, it's not that. I know how to stack up advantages to get myself there. What my dice are incapable of doing is providing the swing numbers. Because there, are, there shouldn't be any swing numbers for fate. That's the point. Sure, but statistically, what is the statistical average in fate? The statistical average is minus one, zero, or plus one. And no, it's no. 66% of the time. No, the, it's, it's not because the plus one and the minus one are as much as the zero. So, I actually know how the dice work. That's so why. <laughs> I know from personal experience... I roll more minus ones than anything else. It in that just game. feels like you roll minus more minus ones than anything else in that game. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go break out my. It, it, break out my it felt sheets. like it for me. Yeah, me too. I'll, there, I'll, there are a number of people who are listening to this podcast who played fake games with me. Are like, yeah, Phil. It's called the Phil for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I kind of feel the same way because my feeling with fate was do everything possible to avoid touching those dice. Mm -mm. That's no, how you play fate. It's not about avoiding touching the dice. It's about making sure that you set yourself up so that when you roll the dice, it doesn't matter if you roll minus one. Correct. You don't count on the dice. The dice are the flourish. Correct. Yeah. I mean, we are off the beaten path yes. for the garage, yeah. but we are talking about mechanics in the garage, which makes it's sense. Fair. Yeah. I, I think that is the biggest failing of fate and it's psychological. And I've said this before on this podcast, like you pick up and you roll those dice and they're not really additive. Sure. And people want additive dice. Yeah. Additive, additive yeah. modifiers. Yes. And that is not how fate works. No. Nope. I mean, what drives most of the math in fate is whatever the stat is you, you have and uh -huh. whatever you pull off the table. Correct. Yeah. Or whatever aspects tied to your It's character. why narrative positioning and creating aspects is the most important thing that you do in that game. Oh, yeah. I mean, as the guy who plays the support character in fate, like I like making, I, I mean, I, and I have said it before, create advantage is the most powerful weapon. It's yeah, also in the fate. most interesting part of the game. Sure, I agree. Attacking is boring. Yeah, I mean, attacking is the thing you do after you've put like 10, you know, cool-ass aspects on the table. Anyway, can I, uh, can I tell you a little ahead. bit more about Cortex? Yeah, do you think? Yeah, I roll well in Cortex is my point. That was my point. <laughs> I, I roll I well. average. Roll well enough. 
Okay. Tests. Simple. Contests are a series of dice rolls between opponents where each one is trying to beat the previous roll. You either back out or you fail to beat that roll. That's how you lose a contest. These obviously provide different types of experience for uh, encounters in Cortex. So let's talk about tests. Okay, well, tests are often used when the challenge results in a general success or failure. They're simple tests. The GM will assemble an opposition pool, depending on the difficulty of the task, the traits in play, and other factors. They then roll those dice and add them together to get two dice from the pool, and they announce that total. Now, this is the difficulty that the character has to beat, not tie, not tie, have to beat it with their own roll. This pool will be based on the player's own abilities, traits, help from other characters, etc. Whatever you can pull off the table, and whatever you want to spend plot points on. They roll their pool and try to beat the GM's total. Normally, tests are just going to be a success or failure result, though there are extreme successes that are five more of the difficulty total, Heroic. or ones that can result in a variety of results. Hitches. And many of the standard encounters in Children of the Shroud and Ox that we talk about are tests. I like them. It feels like a regular role-playing game. If you read the Cortex Prime rules in their purity, right, like without all the other mods, there is a lot of like, if fail test, you're fucked. If you, you know, fail contest, you're like pretty much out of the scene kind of thing, right? I mean, then we get into what is it a high stakes or a low stakes contest, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Stress makes everything a high stakes contest because you can't be taken out by a single die roll. Sure. And then the other one, there's the other one that's basically like oh, task resolution. I, th- I forget what it's called. Action based resolution is the mod. And we have it in Ox. We have it in Children of the Shroud. What is action based resolution? This mod takes the rules for tests and contests and sort of smashes them together using this mod. Anything a player, character, or GM or GMC does is called an action. And then you just roll dice for it. You can still use tests and contests, but... Hey folks, Chris here. Sorry I had to punch in because we were talking about action-based resolution. And it's a little convoluted in why it's different from tests and contests. So, I'm going to try to explain it. A testing cortex means that whoever is taking the action will have their difficulty set before they roll. So, if the GM is rolling against me, or I'm rolling against the GM... I'm the one who's taking action. I get to wait to see what happens, like what my difficulty is. And then I can roll the dice and then I can spend plot points and things like that to add more dice or more effect dice or whatever I'm using. But the point is, is whoever's taking action gets to roll second. When you're using the action-based resolution system, if you are taking action, you roll first. That means you don't know the difficulty that you're trying to beat. Now, it seems like it's not that big of a deal, but it is because the reactor is the one who gets to spend stuff after the fact in that case. And it means that it's a lot more risky to take action in a game like this. But because it's more risky, it maintains a similar resolution mechanic. Whoever rolls second has to beat the person who rolled first. That is true in both cases. It's just about who gets to roll the dice first and see what happens first. That's the big difference between action-based resolution and the test and contest mod. Okay, let's go back to the show. I hope that made some amount of sense. This is the one to me that makes everything feel a little bit more like a regular role-playing game and a little less structured like the Cortex Prime stuff, like the raw Cortex Prime rules. Hey, Phil, why don't you give us an example of what we're talking about? Thanks. So, surprise quiz and calculus. I determine that this is going to be a standard 2d8 difficulty as I'm assembling my pool of dice, right? This is going to be 2d8 difficulty. In addition, because Silas had to skip class yesterday, something that his rival... Lisa taunts him about when the quiz is announced, so I'm going to pick up a d6 for his relationship. And then I'm going to roll my 2d8 1d6 and get a 3, 7, and 5. I'm going to pull the 7 and 5 together to create a 
total of 12, which is now the difficulty of which Silas, Chris's character, will now have to beat. So Silas is going to make a pool consisting of his Geek of D10, his School of D8, and his Distinction learned in spite of being talentless, which is a D8. However, his Distinction also allows him to spend a plot point to double his Geek die when it's appropriate. So with a plot point, this adds another D10 to the pool. So Silas rolls 2D10 and 2D8, gets a 6, 9, 8, and 3. The 9 and 8 give him a 17, resulting in a heroic success. Five more than the difficulty of 12. Silas not only aces the exam, but he also overscores Lisa, something that he can rub in his face later, or whatever else the GM gives for that heroic success. Sure, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about contests now. So contests represent a uh, struggle. In this case, the opposing sides are trying to beat each other's roles, often escalating the numbers. This is often the situation when one side wants something, the other side does not want to give in. Like, I want to kill you, but you want to kill me. So... The instigator will initiate the contest by rolling first. Their two die total will represent the initial difficulty. If the opposition decides not to roll, they can simply give in and the winner gets what they initially wanted. However, if the opposition wants to resist, they're going to assemble their dice pool and roll to see if they can beat the initial roll. If they win, then the instigator can choose to either roll again, continuing the contest and trying to beat that established roll, or they can also then choose to give in. If they give in, the character defines what failure is and gets a plot point, but they do not get what they initially wanted. If the character attempts to beat the opposition and fails, then the opposition gets to define what failure is, and the instigator does not get a plot point, which is a pretty big swing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, if the instigator chooses to continue, they roll again, and the contest continues, with the opposition's total being the new difficulty. This goes back and forth until one side either gives in or fails to beat the difficulty. If this occurs, then the losing side will pick up a complication, stress, or maybe be taken out, depending on the nature of the contest. However, players can always spend a plot point to avoid being taken out. They, they will still have a complication. All right, Phil, let's do another example. Sure. It's going to be a little more detailed, but I think we got this. Let's go. We can do it. All right. Gunny finds himself facing off against Toby, a Toby. rival duelist from another school who has snuck into Creekside to steal a trophy that is actually a magic anchor. That's cool. Toby draws a sword. Gunny manifests his axe, the breath of winter. The GM determines that because this is a battle over magic, that it will involve the mage affiliation. Moving towards Toby, Gunny initiates a duel, which is a form of contest in our game. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also, this initiating thing over magic, that's also part of our rules, not yes. necessarily the contest correct, rules. Correct. Yeah. So Gunny is fighting with his brain, not his brawn, because he's smart. So he uses his geek of D10, his mage of D8, Distinction D8, Leaf on the Wind, and his mana pool of D8, because he's using some magic as he's doing this thing. He rolls a D10 and 3 D8. His roll provides a 10, 8, 7, M1. Not that we know the die types, so it'll be hard to set effect dice here. That's okay. This sets the difficulty at 18, with an effect die of 1 D8. One of those was a D8. We're going to say that the 7 was probably the D8, since that's the only one that it could have been. Mm -hmm. the, the 1 allows the GM to buy it from Gunny for a plot point. That's a hitch. That one that he rolled is a hitch. Mm -hmm. yes. And he's going to create a complication off of it. Gunny takes the plot point and the GM assigns the complication broken glass D6. Oh man, Gunny, why'd you have to break the trophy thing? I didn't break it. <laughs> you totally did. Otherwise there wouldn't be a thing there. Shockwave. Shockwave. Shockwave broke it. It's because you went too fast. By the way, this represents the debris that has been caused by the fight. To be clear, the hitch is not actually part of the contest. That is just basic die mechanics of, of Cortex. Yep. What's important here is that even though he rolled a one, he still succeeded. Sure, it's, it's success with a complication. This, yeah, right. this stuff exists in the game. It's mm -hmm. a new failure with a complication, success with a complication, mm -hmm. whatever. Yep. yep. All right, Toby's a typical opponent, uh, represented by 2d8 plus a mana pool of a d8. 
The GM uses uh, the new complication of D6 as Toby forces Gunny into the broken glass during the duel. Rolling 3D8 and a D6, Toby gets a 6, 5, 7, and 3. Gets a 13 total, nowhere near what he needs to beat Gunny. Toby loses, and Gunny decides to inflict a die of stress on Toby, weakening the newcomer's defenses. By the way, that stress is a D8 because of the effect die, that being a D8 from before. Correct. Toby decides this is not a fight that he can win, so he concedes, takes a complication, and withdraws. The GM and Gunny decide that the complication isn't intimidated by the axe at D6. When Toby shows up again, Gunny will get a D6 against him in the next duel. That's kind of a nice little example there. Yeah. It's interesting to me because you just never know until you see that first roll. These things can end in one roll. They can. If somebody rolls just like, you know, a couple of big fat dice, you can look and just look at your pool and be like, I, I can't numerically pull that number off. Or it's like, nah, I probably can get it and stretch a little, might need a plot point kind of thing. And then at some point, you know, this, this thing will come to an end one way or the other. Like mathematically, it can only top each other so many times before somebody's dice can't reach that, that level. It's true. You can also have some interesting results when the person initiating the duel rolls a couple of hitches. You know, they might be rolling four dice if they roll two or three ones in that first opening roll. That changes dramatically how that fight's going to go from that point on. By the way, I found out from Cam Banks, if you roll all ones on your first initial for the contest, you've just lost. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, it was just, you, whatever you're well, trying to do explodes in your face sure. and you lose. Yeah, I think, I think under the uh, botch rule, I think if you roll all ones, whatever it is you try is a colossal failure. So what do tests and contests do in the game? They give the GM the ability to choose how they want the challenge to resolve. That's probably my favorite thing about this. Like, I know from adventure design... When I am sitting down and writing it. Now, there are ones that just come up spontaneously because you guys take actions and I'm like, oh, okay, we got to do a thing. But if I am laying out what's going to happen in a scene, for instance, that initial physics test, right? I had the option to use either one of these mechanisms, but I was like, oh, I just want this one. This is the first role we're doing in the game. I would like this one just to be simple. Let's just do a test. So, yeah, it, it is a thing that you kind of take into consideration. As we said, the test is simple, quick, and great for one-time challenges. They're good for crisis pools, doom pools, and when challenging the environment. Which is funny because it's a one-time roll, but it is for an extended series of situation. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, doom pools, crisis pools, and often challenging the environment doesn't get resolved in one roll. I, I, thought, I thought it was fascinating that we put it that way. But it is. It works that way. It's simple, but it also ties... This is the, okay, here's the hard thing about talking about mechanics in a vacuum like the garage, because they're always related to every other mechanic in the game if they're designed well. So this, we're talking about a crisis pool that usually goes along with a time test, which also has its own set of rules. Both of those things have their own set of rules and tests are just a nice base mechanic to build upon all this stuff. Yes. Which is why we're talking about it's foundational. Yeah, because in its truest form, right, if you boil away everything else and you don't include the other mods, right, because crisis pool is a mod. Not time test. Time test is actually not a mod. It's actually in the core. It's not marked as a mod. It's the core rule. Yes, it is. But it implies then multiple tests. Yep. Yeah. But a lot of things can be a single test. 
you can just have a thing be a test sure. and outcome determined by roll of die. I think the important thing to remember if you're interested in playing Cortex is that tests are a foundational mechanic. Absolutely. Yeah. It is the most basic way to pick up the dice and roll. Mm-hmm. So the contest, on the other hand, gives you the ability to have a bit of back and forth, similar to a combat encounter in other games. Contests are for when there's determined opposition and potentially higher stakes. The contest also has some interesting game decisions about how to assemble your pool, should you stay in the contest or drop out, and those kind of things. Now, I think the most interesting modification to how the contest functions, and how the test functions, is when you add stress. Yep. Because when you have stress, it's a very different game from when you don't have stress. Mm -hmm. When you don't have stress, the plot point becomes more important because if you lose a contest or a test in that way, depending on a, a contest can be high stakes or low stakes, that's a thing that we don't talk about very much, Right. you can be taken out. And if you are taken out, then the person that takes you out decides what happens to you. Now, if it's low stakes, it usually can't be something bad, but if it's a high stakes situation, you can be killed or something really bad can happen to you. You literally need the plot point to pay your way out of it, right? You have to have a plot point to pay out of it. And then you take a complication yeah, that of you some sort. You. you have to carry with you for a period of time. Also, that complication get bumped up. If that complication gets bumped up over D12, you are also taken out. Yes. So there are multiple ways to be taken out when you're not using stress. Yeah, it's actually a, uh, it, the game's a little harsher, right? Without putting the stress mod in. Yes, it also has the problem that I hate concerning Savage Worlds, which is the Benny becomes your hit points. That means yes. the plot points become hit points in a yep. lot of ways. At least in this game, there are the complications that mitigate that. So it doesn't matter how many plot points you have. If that complication gets bumped over a D12, you're still taken out. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, a different kind of stress. Right. But what's nice with the stress is that like, if you lose the contest, you're like, he uh, hits you with a sword, knocks you back into the locker and you take, you're going to take a, you know, D8 stress and you're like, okay, I'm still in this, like initiate the next phase of the duel. Like we're doing this again. I find the Cortex rule set to be fascinating because of the different ways that you can modify and play around with the rules and the different experiences that it can provide. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's, it's really interesting that you can kind of tune it to the way you kind of, the way you would like it to feel in game. Mm -hmm. All right, then that's our review of Cortex milestones, tests and contests. Tell us your thoughts on milestone advancement advantages of tests and contests in the Slack room. Well, until then, why don't we talk about a different show on Misdirected Mark Productions? So we've got a little show called the Gnomecast. Several gnomes from Gnome Stew get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and to avoid being thrown in the stew pot. Because, you know, it's always bad to get thrown in the stew pot. Yes, it is. Unless you like being in the stew pot, in which case, go for it. You do you. Mm -hmm. You do you. Well, that's our episode. Why don't we do some Patreon shoutouts before we got out of here? Patreon shoutouts? We love Patreon shoutouts. We do love Patreon shoutouts because we love patrons. All right. Big thanks to Chris Constantine, Mirko Froelich, Eric Simon, Kathleen Halperin, Christopher Gmelch, Michael Beck Esperum, Joseph Knoll, Carlos, Heptolemma, Michael Draper, Cubano, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick. Brantley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, JT Evans, Brian Kurtz, my Brett, not my personal Brett, but someone's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, 
Eileen Barnes and Brandon Barnes. And thanks to everyone for listening to this. If you like more content like this, well, you're shit out of luck. No, actually, we have plenty of this. We have pro- we have plenty of this content. It's the other, the AP stuff. You're shit out of luck on because we're only making that as fast as we can. Anyway, if you like, if you like content like this, uh, we got plenty of it at our website at misdirectedmark.com. And if you want even more, and I know you do, our patron page at patron.com/mmp has hundreds of bonus episodes available. Now, Phil teased you about some other shows, and these shows are going to include Panis Talking Games, The Gnomecast, Bonus Experience, and Thack with Advantage. And if that still is enough content for you, then why should it be? I suggest checking out the sibling podcast, Tabletop Bellhop, The Knights of the Night, and Mastering Dungeons. I also want to mention uh, How to RPG. That's Sean P. Kelly from Gaming MBS. He does a bunch of YouTube stuff. That's mm. his channel, How to RPG. He's also live every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, and I've been getting up and listening to it and watching and contributing in the chat room, which it's a pretty fun conversation, usually. Cool. I love the idea. 9 a.m. on a Saturday. I mean, he goes till 11. I mean, I'm up. Like, I mean, if you pop up at like 10, like I we're mean, all still talking. Why yeah. not go to 11, right? Ba-dum-bum. <laughs> all right. Leave us some feedback. You know the drill. You get three XP if you leave us some feedback. <laughs> You can uh, reach us directly using the weird old archaic email at mmp at misdirectedmark.com. I can be found on the Twitters most of the time at DNA Phil. I can also be found on Dice Camp at DNA Phil as well. Around the table, where the where can you all be found? You can find me on Dice Camp at GM Gerrymander. You can also just email me directly at gmgerrymander at gmail.com. I'm going to get some spam now. I haunt the at mmp. At the Misdirected Mark Twitter. So if you hear Misdirected Mark Twitter, it's probably me that you're talking to. That is the <laughs> best way to get a hold of me. That is not the Slack room. But this the Slack room is the best way to talk to me. I pretty much respond instantly when I see it. If you're awake. If yeah. I'm awake. Bob? Uh, you can hit me up on the Twitters at Robert M. Everson. And someday in the not too distant future, I should have had it done by now, but I don't. I am moving over to Dice Camp as well. So look for me there in the future. You remember that Patreon that we talked about earlier with the the tons of bonus episodes? If you want to support us and other shows from Misdirected Mark Productions, you do that at patreon.com slash MMP. When you patronize us, you get access to the After Show podcast, our show notes, the Bamboo Lounge podcast, this MM Plays game stuff like Phil's setting in documents for Children of the Shroud and all the development notes that Chris is putting together for the Lamplighter system. And it's like there's stuff. And the most important thing is the Slack room. Yes, the Slack, the Slack room. room. You get access to the Slack room. Absolutely. Well, this has been a misdirected Mark production, which is the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.